single cab utes and this alleged one ton capacity. How accurate is that really? I'm Tonya Dogan from autoexpert.com.au and I get new cars cheap. Website. Card. Now, I've got this question here. It's quite long, but I think a lot of people are in this category. From Graham Wilkins. There's a good Aussie name. Now, Graham goes, I've been in the transport game for a while, but not really done the numbers on payloads before. Think it could be a public safety guide if you could do a comparison between the major players in the single cab market. I think most people refer to single cabs as one-ton vehicles, but after doing some minor checking, I'm not sure there would be any makes that could actually carry one ton legally and safely. I'm agreeing with that. If I have it correctly, I am awaiting delivery of a Triton 4x4 single cab with a listed payload of 1220 kilos. Average tray weight of 150, 65 litres of fuel to add, nudge bar and front and rear racks, possibly 50 kilos there, possible 20 kilos for tarps and straps, etc. Average driver of, say, 100 kilos, brackets, I'm above average, aren't we all, dude? Leaves a whopping 835 kilos of payload. Is this correct? Yeah. Yeah. We'd love to see your take on it and what other makes come out too. I think we may find that there are a lot of couriers travelling around overloaded. I think the major courier companies would expect a ute to be able to carry a thousand kilos. Yeah, there is that. And I don't know how we can fix this or make it more digestible or simple, right? But if you buy a cab chassis ute, then the tear weight of that vehicle is basically dead empty, no tray, no accessories and 10 litres of fuel right? And then everything else goes into the payload. And I think that the main problem that people have, not just with single cab utes, but with utes generally, is when they think payload, right? People think that's tools and building materials in the back, or it's camper, slide on camper with all of that off-road shit and an extra spare tire or something. What they don't do is they don't go payload is all of that stuff, building materials, landscaping supplies, slide on camp or whatever. But it's also people and accessories, right? People and accessories is a big deal because even my Triton, it's a GSR, two, year, two years old, right? It's got notionally a thousand kilos of payload, 990 something, right? But if you put five people in it and the five people average 80 kilograms each, that's 400 kilos. That's like 40% of the payload. And it's got a tow bar, and the tow bar's got to weigh, I don't know, 30 kilos, 20 kilos, something like that. If you put a bull bar and a winch on the front and uh, proper racks to carry longer items back from Bunnings, you know, timber and stuff of that nature, then you're really talking more than 100 kilos worth of accessories there. You know, a bull bar and a winch has got to be 150. So all of these things just detract from the shit that you can carry for work, okay? And the only way to do this responsibly, to make sure that you comply, and there's you know, insurance and other legal uh, implications if you crash and you are grossly overloaded, right? You can't get away from this stuff, is put the accessories on your vehicle, put the people in the vehicle, 
put the crap that you're going to carry into the vehicle and take it to a weigh bridge, right? And weigh the friggin' car. Or at least put the people in and fit the accessories and take it to a weigh bridge, right? And then you'll figure out how much actual payload for tools and 4x4 stuff and whatever is left. Otherwise, you're just sort of guesstimating and that is really an easy way to be driving down the road overloaded and then you have a crash and you end up parked on the roof and somebody gets badly injured and then the lawyers and their uh, the insurance company and their lawyers and investigators get involved and it's found that you were grossly overloaded and dude I didn't know is really not going to be an excuse in mitigation it's going to take malice off the table, but you're still doing it illegally and liability could easily attach to you and I don't think you want that. There's a real problem in Australia where people think that their utes are trucks, okay? They're really only light-duty utility vehicles. There's nothing truck-like about them. They're far more car-like than truck-like, like let's be realistic, and they were never designed to carry a thousand kilos of stuff and haul a three-ton trailer at the same time. That's just absolutely ridiculous. And I agree with Graham when he says that courier companies might expect a ute to be able to carry a thousand kilos, but if you put a steel tray on a ute and a few accessories and a big fat bastard behind the wheel... There's no way you can legally carry one tonne. Hey, I just wanted to give you a bonus question at the end here because I get a heap of questions broadly like this next one, okay? And these are not issues like, you know, my engine's just had a catastrophic failure and the car company's just told me to go to buggery and it looks like it's going to cost me 30 grand and I need my car to get to work and I can't pay the mortgage if I pay the 30 grand kind of thing. They're serious problems and they do require a lot of effort and often some anguish and you've got to get the gloves on and maybe step into the ring with a car maker in consumer court, roll the dice and risk losing and all of that stuff. It's highly stressful and unpleasant. And I guess these things are on a spectrum. That's up one end. And the other end of the spectrum kind of goes like this. Now, this is a question I got just a couple of days ago from a dude named Jack Dreykus. I hope I haven't mangled that too badly, Jack. Anyway, Jack goes, Hi, Junt. Got a problem with my vehicle, which is a Mazda 3 Touring hatch from 2019. So not that old. Should still be reasonably durable, subject to it not being abused, right? Jack goes, The black piping on the driver's seat, it's a leather seat, has worn through. The black piping has a black coating on the surface, knock me down with a feather, now showing a cream colour. How nice. Have shown the Mazda dealer twice and head office said it's normal wear and tear. I'm pretty sure that's not in the brochure. For in three years, you should expect this to happen to yo driver's seat. Anyway, also spoken to Mazda customer service to no avail. I told them I had a Nissan Maxima for 18 years. Be still my beating heart. What was second prize? 16 years in a Nissan Maxima? Anyway... Jack says the grey piping on that vehicle did not wear through in all of that time. Okay, so subject to Jack not wearing a 120 grit emery cloth jumpsuit 
to work and back every day in the car. Seats shouldn't do that. I think we can all agree on that, right? And they should probably look after him because the car industry is preposterously shit at not doing the calculus on how is this kind of decision going to affect the punter's decision to upgrade in three to five years' time, or even 18 years? Are they going to go with Mazda again if Mazda bends them over in the service department? Probably not, okay? But the question is, what do you do when they tell you to go to buggery? Because this is not the $30,000 catastrophic engine failure, go to buggery, you're just going to wear the cost, dude, conversation, is it? There's not that much at stake. In fact, it's a pretty first world problem. I got some scuffing on the driver's seat, right? What are you going to do? And I'd suggest that if what you've done is you've had these conversations, right, with the dealer or head office, and they've all been verbal exchanges, then they're not really worth as much as a written exchange. The pen, you know, mightier than the sword, that's a thing. So I'd be going to the ACCC's website or I'd just go to Google and search the term ACCC formal complaint letter, okay? That'll give you two things. It'll give you a bunch of resources about how to write one. And there's even an online formal complaint letter generating tool. And you should avail yourself of that and make a formal complaint to the dealer, but also CC that across to Mazda head office. Because if it did come from push to shove sort of thing, then you're going to be in court. There's going to be two respondents. The first respondent is going to be the dealer and the second respondent is going to be Mazda. And you should also say that if a suitable resolution is not forthcoming, you regretfully inform them that you'll be taking this matter up with the ACCC. Now, the ACCC does not act for individuals, so they will not roll a team in a Black Hawk helicopter to abseil into your garage and go to court for you, okay? But this is still a coercive thing you can do in the exchange with Mazda because Mazda has had a fairly recent high-profile reaming from the ACCC and they would not want to give the ACCC any further ammunition to shoot them in the head with again. So there's that, okay? And that might soften them all up and they can just say, you know what, for the cost of a driver's seat, we can make this guy go away. And we all want that they're going to feel like they're getting a win out of it, and you certainly are, okay? So this is why these formal representations are kind of more valuable to you as a consumer than just some exchange that you have on the end of a 1-800 number, okay? And then the next thing is if they do tell you properly to go to buggery and they're not prepared to look after you at all, what do you do next? Because it's probably not worth sitting in front of a lawyer and asking their advice. And in fact, if you did that, what's going to happen? It's going to cost you 400 bucks if you sit there for an hour, right? And you're just going to get advice about how to take it to court. You might even just from there on represent yourself and you might win. But that's going to require time off work and that's going to cost you another few hundred dollars, okay? And for the bill of a thousand bucks or so, and might be even more than that because if you go to court, you're going to need some expert who's going to talk about trim and durability and the nature of the wear marks and his investigation into the calibre of the materials in your driver's seat and all of that crap. That's going to cost you more than a thousand bucks. So at this point, you're like two grand into it and you might lose. Whereas 
as unpalatable as this might be, the pragmatic option here might just be to get yourself to an independent motor body trimmer, show them the problem and ask them what they would do to fix it. And, you know, even more pragmatically, it might be just a matter of living with it and then when you go to trade the car in, implement the solution then to increase the visual presentation of the car and therefore up the trade-in value ever so slightly or make the, trade, make the resale value, if you're selling it privately, just a little bit more favourable. Now, in an ideal world, someone would run out of the service department and go, oh, this is terrible, we're going to fix it. Okay, But the world is not ideal and you do have to come to grips with its non-ideality from time to time. And therefore there is an ideal solution which should happen if you're being uh, fair enough to them and they're being fair enough to you and then there is the interaction with the real world and you might find that this is just one of those times where you have to spend a few hundred bucks worth of your own money and implement an independent solution just to take all of that pain of going to court and potentially even then just losing off the table.